All right, will you please stand and turn with me to Joshua 15. Here's what we're going to do tonight. We're not going to have a New Testament reading. As you can see in the bulletin, we're covering three chapters of Joshua tonight. We're in this middle section um, where there's a a lot of uh, intricate detail regarding the boundaries in particular cities and each inheritance of the tribes. Uh, There will be some parts that I'm going to summarize tonight as we go through. Every word of these passages is the inspired and infallible word of God, and I encourage you to read it on your own. Uh, because we're covering three chapters, I will summarize portions, so that, and you can go and, and read some of the details uh, later on in your own time. But this will be an effective way for us to get the big picture of these three chapters in this context tonight. All right, so we're going to begin with chapter 15, and before we read, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would please focus our minds, clarify them, and uh, warm our hearts to receive what you have for us in this portion of your word tonight. Uh, We ask that it would be clear to us that you would please help us to um, see Christ as you are revealing uh, the word made flesh to us in this portion of your written word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Joshua chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin, at the farthest south. And their boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of Akrabim, passes along to Zin, and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brook of Egypt and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And the east boundary is the Salt Sea to the mouth of the Jordan, and the boundary on the north side runs from the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. The text goes on to describe Judah's northern boundary in more detail as it curves up and westward toward the Mediterranean See until verse 11 says, then the boundary comes to an end at the sea. And the west boundary, verse 12, was, at the, was the great sea with its coastline. This is the boundary around the people of Judah according to their clans. Verse 13. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, to him will I give Aksah my daughter as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, and he gave him Aksah his daughter as wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah according to their clans. The cities belonging to the tribe of the people of Judah in the extreme south toward the boundary of Edom were Kabziel, Eder, Jagur, Kina, Dimona, Adada, Kadesh, Hatzor, Ithnan, Ziph, Telem, Baaloth, Hatzor, Hadata, Kiriath Hezron, that is Hatzor, Amam, Shema, Molada, Hatzar Gada, Heshman, Beth Pelet, Hatzar Shual, Beersheba, 
Bitsiothiah, Baala, Iim, Etzim, Eltalad, Kesil, Horma, Ziklag, Madmana, Sansana, Lebeoth, Silhim, Ayan, and Rimmon, in all 29 cities with their villages. After this, there are uh, similar lists of cities for Judah's lowland, including uh, significantly the Philistine cities. Skipping down to verse 45, that includes Ekron with its towns and villages from Ekron to the sea, all that were by the side of Ashdod with their villages. Ashdod, its towns and its villages. Gaza, its towns and its villages to the brook of Egypt and the great sea with its coastline. Uh, then there are lists for, of cities for the hill country. That's verses 48 through 60. And then for the wilderness in verses 61 and 62. And then the last verse of the chapter. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. We're going to read all of chapter 16, which is short. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country to Bethel. And going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Aharoth, the territory of the Archites. Then it goes down westward to the territory of the Jophletites, as far as the territory of lower Beth Horon, then to Gezer, and it ends at the sea. The people of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. The boundary of their inheritance on the east was Ataroth Adar, as far as Upper Beth Horon, and the boundary goes from there to the sea. On the north is Mikmathoth. Then on the east, the boundary turns around toward Ta'anath Shiloh and passes along beyond it on the east to Genoa. Then it goes down from Genoa to Ataroth and to Naara and touches Jericho, ending at the Jordan. And so on. Further description of the boundaries of Ephraim and a summary. Uh, and then we come to verse 10, which says, However, significantly, however, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Chapter 17. Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abiezer, Helek, Azriel, Shechem, Hafer, and Shemida. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hafer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. They approached Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So, according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. Uh, following that comes a description, verses 7 through 11, of Manasseh's uh, tribal boundaries bordering Ephraim to the south, Asher to the north, and Issachar to the east. Verse 11, also in Issachar and in Asher, 
Manasseh had Beth Shean and its villages, and Ibliam and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Ta'anak and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. The third is Nafat. Yet, the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not, but did not utterly drive them out. Verse 14, then the people of Joseph spoke to Joseph, spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance? Although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me. And Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Amen. You may be seated. And well done attending through a challenging passage of scripture. Recently, uh, my sister, Amy, some of you have met her, was uh, telling me about a book that she'd recently read by a man named Tim Marshall. And the title is Prisoners of Geography, 10 Maps That Explain Everything About the World. Uh, And the idea is that you can understand world history better, you can understand uh, geopolitics a lot better, you can also make some intelligent predictions about the future decisions of people groups and nations better. Um, If you take the time, which a lot of people don't do, to understand geography, to understand how the natural features of things like mountains and rivers and deserts and seas and plains um, shape the options that these different people groups have and and the the kinds of pressures they feel. A good example of this is uh, the way that many people talk about Russia's history being frequently driven by a desire for a warm water port um, and the way that plays out in different parts of, of Russian history. Uh, and there's actually a whole school of thought in historiography called, uh, they call it, there's a scholarly term, geographical determinism. Um, and they make a very big deal of this and kind of read all of history through the lens of geography. And of course, anything can be taken too far. We don't want to see geography as the only factor that's important in history. It's one of those things when all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Um, nonetheless, the basic point of this whole school of thought is worth hearing, just to realize that geography has a big influence on history. People are indeed formed by the places where they live, and history is indeed frequently shaped by the contours of the land where it is lived out. And it's really important to remember as we continue to wade through these details of the allotment of the promised land, Israel, um, when you look at these chapters, it's easy just to see a, a, a blur 
of place names. But I want to encourage you to do is to look at those place names more, um, less like a, a painting to look at, to look at, and more like a window to look through. Um, I will freely admit that there's just not a lot of practical application for how you should live tomorrow from reading Halhul, Bethsur, Gedor, Ma'arath, Bethanoth, and Eltikon, six cities with their villages. You're just not going to uh, find some magical application for our lives from this or magically find some allegory connecting us to Jesus on the cross or something like that. That would be, that's not the way we're to interpret this. What we want to do instead is to try to look through this passage, to look through this passage to Israel's future. And that's why our first point tonight is going to be setting the stage. That's chapter 15, followed by falling short. It's going to be chapter 16, as well as some other places surrounding it. And then finally, discontent and distrust. It'll be chapter 17. Okay, so setting the stage, falling short, and then discontent and distrust. First of all, setting the stage. Okay, so we've talked a lot in Joshua so far, so far about the, his, the continuity in the history between the conquest of Canaan now and what's happened earlier for Israel. So reaching back into the past, thinking of, of the echoes from the Exodus, from the wilderness, from the book of Numbers. When I preached on chapter 12, I talked about, um, as an application for us, the importance of seeing our present when we're living now, as growing out of our past, growing out of the the deep past of God's work throughout the history of his people. Because the one God of history, the same in all ages, uh, has been acting at every point in history along the way from creation until now to bring us to this very point where we are today. So I want to reach back and see that continuity with the past. Tonight, what I want to do is turn our attention the other direction. Think about the continuity in the history between now and the future. What's the connection between now and the future? Because that same one God of history is acting now, not just to continue or or complete what he's done in the past, But he's also, right now, preparing the way for what comes next. What he's going to do um, in the future beyond us. And it's very significant, then, uh, to realize in chapter 15 that the first tribe whose allotment is described here on the west side, remember the west side story, west side of the Jordan River, there in the heartland of Canaan, the first tribe that gets an allotment there is the tribe of Judah. And so already, right off the bat, we're getting that indication of the prominence of Judah among the tribes. It's reflecting uh, Jacob's prophecy. We heard back in Genesis 49, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, Jacob said. Uh, Judah is destined to be the royal tribe, the tribe that's going to produce King David one day. And um, we can take David as just one representative example here and think about the way the geography of Judah is being described in chapter 15 is setting the stage, these particular boundary lines, these particular cities, and how they're going to shape David's story one day when it is time for that great king to come. 
Um, Think about the wilderness where David was so effectively able to hide from Saul. Um, In verse 55, you you see Maon and Ziph. And if you were to turn to um, 1 Samuel 23, you'd see David hiding out in the wilderness of Maon and the wilderness of Ziph. Those particular places within these boundary lines. Uh, In verse 31, you can see Ziklag named. Ziklag, well, remember that's where David's family was captured by the Amalekites while the Philistines were off fighting Saul. And then David goes and rescues them. Uh, Hebron is mentioned here along with the story of Caleb. Hebron's very important because that's where the men of Judah come from all around this region, from all of these cities, within all this whole territory. And they anoint David as king over Judah for the very first time at Hebron. See, what is the Lord doing here in Joshua 15 then? What he's doing is he's setting the stage for the history he has planned for Judah in the future. It's like the seeds are being planted in all of these cities of, for the families that one day are going to make David king tribe of Judah is going to come to maturity in this homeland, in these cities, within these borders. They're going to reach the heights of their power under David and Solomon here. They're going to reach the depths of their depravity on all of those high places that they're going to build here under the wicked kings. They're going to experience the devastation of invasion and defeat and captivity under Babylon here. And one day, it's this tribe that's going to produce the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, the Lord Jesus. And it all begins here in these places that God is giving to this tribe. So what I want to see is that it's not just that the present grows out of the past. The present is the embryo of the future. See, what's going to happen one day, think about it. One day, the future is going to be the present. And right now is going to be the past, right? People are once again going to be looking back and saying, well, look at what God was doing then. Look how he was preparing then for what he's doing now. And this should give us some encouragement as God's people to know that that what God is doing in your life, what he's calling you to do with your life, it's all part of his plan to bring about the future that he has planned that is good and that is wise and that is perfect. Do you want to understand that your future is not totally open and uncertain? Uh, from a human point of view, it is. Of course, you, know, you look in the future and think, I don't know what's going to happen. There are so many different ways that it could go. And sometimes that's really disconcerting. So many bad things that could happen. Which is why we worry, why we get anxious. Uh, Sometimes it's exhilarating because there's so much potential, there's so much opportunity. Uh, Sometimes it's kind of depressing, actually, to look at the future because maybe you think, well, there's actually less future left for me than there used to be, and and I, I can't really see how my present life is amounting to what I'd like it to amount to, but... In all of these things, whether you're exhilarated or, or scared or depressed by looking to the future, what we want to see from this perspective is that your, your present and your future both are in the hand of the sovereign God of history, the sovereign God of providence. And he is using your present right now to prepare you 
For whatever he has in store, and one thing is for sure that he's told you is in store, that he's promised is in store, and that's that eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What he's doing in your life right now is preparing that for you, even through the light and momentary afflictions that he may be calling you to endure. And he's promised you also that in the future he has laid up for you who are trusting in Christ the crown of righteousness, he says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, is going to award you on that day, not only to Paul, but who, said, who wrote that, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And see, that's all the incentive that we need then, as Paul says in that passage, to fight the good fight of, of faith now and to, to um, finish the race now, to keep the faith now. Why? Because we're trusting that the Lord is bringing his perfect future out of our often uncertain, often very difficult, and sometimes excruciating present, just the way he's brought our present out of the past. Now, before we leave chapter 15, I want to comment on the unique episode of, uh, with Caleb here. We already talked about Caleb a lot last time, so I don't want to go back over all of it, his uh, courageous faith. As he was looking forward at 85 years old, he was looking forward to this opportunity finally to take over his particular part of Judah's inheritance uh, from the Anakim, who had so terrified the rest of the people of Israel those 45 years before. Well, here in chapter 15, in verses 13 and 19, he actually does it. He actually accomplishes it. He actually... Uh, succeeds in defeating those huge Anakim warriors, driving them out and taking Hebron and this part of the uh, that, that surrounding region. Um, and when Aksa, his daughter, asks Caleb for these springs of water near Hebron, um, it's another good reminder to us of, of the very concrete like historical realness. of These are real places where we, real people needed a water source to be able to drink if they were going to live there, what good is it to have a city like Hebron if you don't have good water to drink? Um, and one commentator points out that this section, by zooming in on this one family's fight for their particular piece of the inheritance, it reminds us that, that the whole conquest wasn't just a big national movement, kind of this abstract thing, oh, uh, this whole people group did it. This is something that was accomplished, that was carried out by individuals by moms and dads and well yeah, and and by, by soldiers by clan by clan family by family as these these people went and took the inheritance that God had given to them um, and so as we think about this idea of God bringing our future out of our past out of the past out of our present we should remember that he's not just doing that in this kind of generic way for the world in general, or for Christians in general, for the church in general. He's doing it individually. That's played out in the lives of men and women and boys and girls, moms and dads and children, as we individually walk into that future with trust in God's providence as we live it out by faith. This is something God is doing in your family. He's doing it for you, the promises that he's made. Now, the second uh, big point tonight is a little bit less cheerful, a lot less cheerful than the first. Chapter 16, we've labeled falling short. That's primarily because of the last verse in the chapter um, and some parallel verses in 15 and 17. So the last verse is, however, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. 
but have been made to do forced labor. Now, not to be too hard just on Ephraim, um, we can gather under this same heading some similar statements about Judah in chapter 15 and Manasseh in chapter 17. In fact, we go back to chapter 15, verses 45 to 47, which lists those, those Philistine cities. The Philistine cities are listed as part of Judah's territory. But, of course, you know, think about David's life. Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, that, those were controlled by the Philistines still. So, apparently, Judah hadn't succeeded in driving them out by that time. And, in fact, that's um, a good reminder that when David and Saul fought the Philistines, when David fought Goliath, you know, those stories, that, that part of Israel's history, we should read as a continuation of the conquest, in a, in a very real sense. They're continuing to carry out this work. God is raising up these kings, first Saul, and then after his failure, David, to accomplish as kings what Israel never accomplished in the initial conquest and never accomplished under the judges. Um, Israel had, and Judah had, and Judah in particular, had dropped the ball during this time. Um, and so uh, Saul and David uh, continue that work. Uh, another example, this is verse 63. The Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Uh, and so you remember in da- another part of David's life is when a major moment is when David conquers the city of Jerusalem. Of course, he ma- then he makes it his capital city. And then for the rest of Israel's history, Judah, I'm sorry, Jerusalem is the capital city. That's where the temple gets built. But here it's still under control of the Jebusites. There's, we need to read David's conquest of Jerusalem, his great success as God's chosen anointed king against the backdrop of Judah's failure to capture that city under Joshua and the judges. Now, that failure to defeat the Philistines, that failure to, failure to defeat the Jebusites, that's part of a, a troubling, really, uh, kind of trend that starts to emerge here in these middle chapters of Joshua of Israel more broadly not quite following through, not quite carrying the conquest all the way through to the end. In chapter 17, flipping over there, it's Manasseh. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And then furthermore, when the people of Israel grew strong, even when they grew strong, they still didn't drive them out. It says they, the, the Canaanites, um, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Okay, now, so um, it's not necessarily a huge problem that they couldn't drive out all the Canaanites in one go in the very earliest years because God had um, given them a preview of this back all the way back in Exodus. Exodus twenty three twenty nine. God tells them ahead of time, I will not drive them out before you in one year. Why? Well, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Uh, Don't want to have this deserted land when Israel hasn't multiplied enough to populate the whole land. But then he goes on to say in the next verse, you shall make no covenant with them, though, and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods... It will surely be a snare to you. That's exactly what happens to the nation. See, the problem comes in that second half of Manasseh's story, uh, that even when they could drive the Canaanites out, even when they grew strong, they still didn't. 
They still didn't do it. Uh, one commentator made a really interesting point here. He, he, he was saying that um, by doing this, uh, the people of Manasseh were acting kind of like Achan, weren't they? Think about that. They were taking something that should have been devoted to destruction, like Achan did, right? And they were devoting it to their own use instead. So it's that same heart problem of Achan is continuing more broadly throughout the people. And this, that trend gets Israel in serious trouble as the years go by. Uh, it's a major theme in Judges explaining why Israel ends up falling, to, falling into idolatry in the future. Because exactly what God warned them about actually does happen. Those idols are a snare to them, and they end up becoming just like these neighbors. Um, now, we talked about this last time a fair bit, so I don't want to belabor this whole point. But I'll just remind us, this should be a warning to all of us as God's people about any kind of half-hearted obedience. Um, we sometimes like to tell our kids that uh, obedience means they need to obey right away, all the way, and in a cheerful way. Because if, if, they, if they do just part of what we said, but they don't finish the job, well, that's not obedience. If they do what we said, but, but they do it with a grudging spirit, that's not obedience. If they do what we tell them eventually, but they do what they want to do first, that's not obedience. You obey right away, all the way, in a cheerful way. And we teach them all of this um, not so that our lives as parents will be more convenient, although we have to watch out for that temptation. Sometimes that's the reason we make rules, and that's wrong, uh, just for our own convenience. We shouldn't do that. But in our better moments, when we're practicing godly parenting, we teach them that principle, those principles of obedience because they're the principles that God's people need to know for how to obey the Lord. We, we tell our children, listen, we're teaching you to obey us so that you can learn to obey God, and you've got to understand that mommy and daddy have to obey too. We are also under authority. We have to obey the Lord, and we need to obey him right away, all the way, in a cheerful way. That's what obedience looks like, and how convicting it is to think even when I do obey or make an effort to, do I do it right away? Do I do it all the way? Do I do it in a cheerful way? And here's an example of Israel refusing to obey all the way, which in effect is not obeying God at all. And this once again should make us so tremendously thankful in our lives, in our children's lives, for the Lord Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father all the way. All the way, even to the point of death on a cross. All the way until he could say, it is finished. Everything the Father had given him to do there. The whole atonement, full atonement can it be. And it should make us thankful also for the the hope that God gives us of those new heavens and the new earth and revelation, because what does God say about them? The Lord promises that there aren't going to be any leftover remnants of evil to deal with for eternity, that are always going to keep cropping up to harass us forever and ever, and always cropping up to tempt us and to keep drawing us away like these Canaanites did for Israel. No, Christ's conquest is going to be complete at last. Revelation says nothing unclean will ever Enter it. 
and he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's the hope that we have in Jesus, who obeyed all the way so that these things to be true for us. All right, and we're going to zip down through chapter 17 uh, to verse 14 in a minute here. As we go uh, by, um, we're going to just note in passing the interesting little interlude with the daughters of Zelophehad, uh, kind of this unique story. Uh, if you want to know their, their backstory, I'd refer you back to Numbers 27. You can read about Zelophehad there. Uh, this is another example of Joshua carrying out exactly what God said was to happen through Moses, that very specific, detailed obedience to everything that Moses had set in place uh, by the word of the Lord. Um, so Zelophehad was a father who had no sons. And so the question was, well, what, what's going to happen to his land inheritance if he has no sons? And the answer was, well, the inheritance can go to your daughters, uh, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Terza, these five women received this inheritance uh, in the, uh, that was given to their father when he dies. And this is yet another example that we've seen uh, so many times. The Lord is being faithful here in Joshua 17 to his earlier promises on the divine side of the covenant, and Joshua is, going, is continuing to be faithful uh, to the instructions Moses left behind on the human side in every detail. It's also a good reminder uh, that the blessings of the promised land are for all of God's people. They're not just for the heads of households. They're not just for the captains of the armies. They're not just for the soldiers and not just for the men. Um, And this um, is hinting perhaps at the future of the covenant of grace and the time of fulfillment now when through Christ... Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The promised inheritance that we have in Christ, that we receive from him, is for all Christians, without distinction. And perhaps we can see a preview of that here in the inheritance of the daughters of Salafahad, as a preview of the inheritance of all of the daughters and sons of God. Um, through Christ, our older brother, who has purchased that inheritance for us all. And finally, we arrive now at verse 14 of chapter 17. 17, 14. And um, so we've come to the third point, which is discontent and distrust. I'm borrowing those words, by the way, from Ralph Davis, I've quoted so many times before. He uses them here to describe the attitude of Ephraim and Manasseh at the end of this chapter. Um, the tone of their complaint, when, when you hear Joseph, Joseph, the people of Joseph, that's the people of Ephraim and Manasseh, because those are the two sons of Joseph. Uh, so two tribes under this one name. Um, their tone in verse 14 is a little bit jarring, don't you think? Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance? Um, but then when, when Joshua tells them, on the other hand, how to get more territory, how to get more, play, more space to live in, by going up and fighting the Canaanites in the forested areas that they haven't taken over yet. They say, well, well, no, we can't do that. We don't want to do that. The Canaanites are too strong. They have these chariots of iron. We don't want to go fight against people with chariots of iron. We'll never be able to defeat them. Uh, it's sadly reminiscent of that wilderness generation that 
was so afraid of the Anakim all of those years before, and so they wouldn't go up into the land in the first place. It's a great contrast also, isn't it, to the attitude of Caleb. And Ralph Davis points out, Caleb and Ephraim and Manasseh present these contrasting pictures of two different ways that Israel can potentially live in the land. One, the way of faithfulness and courage and trusting God. The other, the way of discontent and distrust that results in covenant failure. We shouldn't forget, by the way, um, back in chapter 11, Israel defeated an army that had a lot of chariots. Remember the army of Jabin? One of the things that made it so imposing was the fact that they had chariots and Israel didn't. But that posed no problem for the Lord, right? If Ephraim has seen the Lord defeat armies with chariots, why are they faltering now in their confidence, in their trust of what the Lord is able to do? And so David draws here what I think is a good application for us. How often do you and I struggle with discontentment on the one hand, then distrust on the other There's an opportunity for God to provide for us what we're thinking we desire. We have this discontent because we feel entitled, we feel frustrated, because we want something other than what God has given to us. But then when God actually sets an opportunity in front of us to move forward in faith and to do work that's going to be good for his kingdom, good for us, now, how quick we are to find all the reasons why, oh, that won't work. All the reasons not to try, all the reasons not to get started partly because we don't want to take the risk. We don't want to make the sacrifice, perhaps, that it requires. But at the heart of it all is the real problem that we don't really trust him as we should. And so, in conclusion, we're brought back then to, once again, our need for the Lord Jesus. Jesus, who throughout his life, at every moment, was perfectly content perfectly content with what his father gave him. Jesus, in fact, who who laid aside his lot, you could say, of heavenly glory and took up a much worse one instead. He took up our lot. He bore our nature. Ultimately, he bore our sin and our punishment. And when the time came, he, to actually lay his life down for us, Jesus did not waver. His courage did not fail. He did not hold back. And why was that? Why did Jesus' courage not fail in the garden? Why did it not fail on the cross? It was because, I'll tell you, it's because he trusted his father. Perfectly trusted his father about what was going to happen next. In the resurrection and in his exaltation. Jesus did all of those things for us in his death and his suffering. Specifically so that, so, that, so that we discontent and distrusting people could receive his forgiveness for all of that. His forgiveness for all of our discontentment and our distrust. So we could get our righteousness from him. So we could receive our inheritance through him. Because he deserved it in a way that Israel sure never did. In a way that we sure do not. But he did deserve it because he always was content. He always obeyed. He always trusted. And so through this passage and these experiences of Israel's early history in the land, I think the Lord Jesus is calling us together tonight then 
to grow in both of those areas of our lives, to grow in contentment on the one hand, not to have that restless will that hurries to and fro, but waits on the Lord. And then as we wait and we rest with contentment in his provision for us, we really, uh, and as we have that grow in contentment, then we will also be able to grow in trust. As we grow in trust, we're going to grow in boldness to accomplish the work that God has given us to do because those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And that is something that we can take away from this passage as we hope in Christ, the true Israelite who has succeeded in all the ways that Israel and we have failed. So let's, with that in mind, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus, <clears throat> the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We're thankful for his perfect obedience, for his perfect trust in you. And Lord, we thank you for um, the way he obeyed you all the way, not just part of the way, but all the way to the cross to give us a complete and perfect salvation so that we can look forward to a new heavens and a new earth where all the evil has been cleansed away once and for all, never to return again. We ask you would prepare us for that day. And even now, Lord, be purging the last remnants of evil out of our own hearts, putting that sin to death, making us more like him, helping us to grow in contentment and trust until you take us home and until he comes again. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.